Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 136, Dustin Smith on Debating Jesus' Pre-Existence. Dr. Dustin Smith is an instructor at Atlanta Bible College, where he teaches Greek and New Testament studies. He has a Ph.D. in religion from Bethany Divinity School, and he has served on the pastoral staffs of three churches. He's the author of the book Paradoxical Conquering in the Apocalypse of John, and is a co-author of the book The Son of God, Three Views of the Identity of Jesus. His blog, called Dustin Martyr, covers mainly New Testament studies. You can find it at dustinmartyr.wordpress.com. Dr. Smith is here again with us today to talk about his recent debate on whether Jesus pre-existed his human life with Mr. David Barron. Dr. Smith, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Dr. Smith, I really enjoyed your recent debate with uh, Mr. David Barron about whether the Bible teaches that Jesus existed before he was a human being. It was a good old-fashioned knockdown, drag-out, exegesis-oriented debate, and you know, it takes some effort to listen through or watch through this, but it's rewarding, and I hope a lot of people do actually listen through it with their Bible in their hand and. Uh, if they do that, they'll find it's a very stimulating exercise. And so, in this interview, I wanted to first discuss some things with you that would be most relevant before people have heard the debate. Now, a lot of people already will have, but that's okay. And then we'll take a break, and then we'll talk about some questions that assume that you've already seen the debate. And so, if people want to pause it in the middle, they can do that. And so, Dr. Smith, let's start out with your thoughts about the debate. In your view, how did it go? Is there anything that you would add or subtract from what happened or from what you said in the debate? I feel very comfortable with uh, my preparation and what I said in the debate. I thought that my debate partner was well prepared and that he brought his A-game. Uh, I thought uh, at times it was very tense and to admit this was my first public debate, uh, but I feel very comfortable with the subject that we were talking about, and I feel very comfortable with the amount of preparation that I had. So I thought it was very good. It was a very good exchange. I thought that we were able to dialogue at a very high level, and I thought that we were able to converse over a lot of topics, and we were able to uh, lay our cards on the table and really show what our particular arguments were so that the audience can look at those things and assess what they thought was more persuasive. Dr. Smith, you hold that Jesus did not exist prior to his human career. Why, in your view, is this issue important? I mean, it has been a popular view that at a certain point, the Son of God became a human. Why is it, in your view, important to disagree with that and to say that Jesus' career just goes back to his conception? Well, I think I start from an allegiance to the text of the Bible itself. And when I start reading through the Old Testament, I don't see a pre-existent Son of God or Jesus floating around out there. I don't see this. I'm also aware of church history, and I'm aware that the Christology developed over the first 500 years within the church councils and within the church fathers and the various creeds. So I'm aware that historically that took place. I also look at the New Testament, and as I try to responsibly 
place those texts uh, in their original context and understand as best as we can what these original authors are trying to convey to their audiences, it doesn't appear that they were arguing that Jesus literally preexisted his birth and became a human being. As I try to take the evidence as seriously and impartially as possible, I don't really come to the conclusion that a lot of other people have. I try to be informed with some of the best scholarship that's available to us. I try to take the languages as seriously as possible. And I also try to uh, honor all of Scripture and not just take a handful of passages to the neglect of others. So the main reason is just that you think the Bible is best understood as having Jesus begin with his human career. Of course, this is a perspective that's taken from your particular branch of Christianity uh, that you're a part of now. You could call it part of the Radical Reformation tradition. Even if prior traditions have taught Jesus' pre-human existence, let's examine the Bible, and if that doesn't say it, then we're not going to say it. But I wonder, though, do you also take the view that if Jesus pre-existed, then he wouldn't be a real human being? Yeah, I think that that would be a little difficult to legitimate. One of the things that I clearly see both in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and in the New Testament is that Jesus is the promised human descendant of all of these major figures, the son of Abraham, the son of David. He is the branch of David. He is the prophet like Moses from among the Israelites. And we see that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. He has to be a human being in order to fit that. We also see that the qualifications for the role of the Messiah is someone who has to be a descendant of David. So an angel is not a descendant of David. An angel could not show up in the first century and claim to be the Messiah and hope that anyone would take him very seriously because he doesn't meet the qualifications. And so if the real person is a preexistent heavenly being, whether that be God or an angel or some other divine being, and that person sort of becomes human, but the real inside of them, their mind and their conscience and, and the, the whole true self of who they are is really someone who's pre-human, then their humanity is really not legitimate. It's almost as if they're dressing up in a man suit or in a, a suit of humanity. Or if they want to say that the humanity is completely legitimate, then you now have the problem of two natures and the problem of two different wills and two different minds. And yet Jesus never speaks this way. He always speaks of someone who talks about himself as one particular person. He has one will and one particular mind. He completely dies. And so it seems best to take seriously that Jesus, uh, although was promised and planned in the Hebrew Bible, he was someone who was brought into existence as a legitimate human being, like the author of Hebrews says, he's someone who was made like his brothers. Is a part of your motivation that you don't believe in souls? Because if a person believes in souls, they might think that the Logos sort of takes the eternal word of God, sort of takes the place of a soul in the man Jesus. And so then you'd only have one self. I'm aware that some people don't believe in souls. They believe that humans are material beings. Some Christians, I mean, hold this. And so then it's hard to see how an eternally existing divine spirit could become a wholly material biological organism. Uh, is that part of what's going on, or are you agnostic about human nature or how humans are composed? Yeah, I would say that my particular interpretation is not springboarding off of those particular theological issues. Just to put my cards on the table, I believe that human beings themselves are souls. I would think that it's probably incorrect to say that people possess souls as if they're kind of this body-soul dualism. I see at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 2-7 that you have 
Adam was created dust of ground plus breath of life equals a uh, nefesh haya in Hebrew. He's a, he became a living soul. Not that he has or possesses a living soul, but he became a living soul when he was created from the dust of the ground and God's life force, God's breath was breathed into him. So pre-existing soul seems to be an extra-biblical, non-biblical idea. Uh, as far as the word is concerned, you know, one of the things that I tried to articulate within the debate is that the Hebrew word devar, used 1,400 times in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, always refers to a spoken thing, like an oracle. It's just an express thing, uh, just a typical word. But it never refers to a conscious person distinct alongside God or alongside Yahweh. It's never a distinct person that ultimately becomes flesh. It's always God's personified utterance, his own very words that characterize his own heart and mind. God speaks things into creation. And so God's words poetically get embodied in the human Jesus in John 1.14 when the word became flesh. And that's why the Gospel of John continually and overwhelmingly makes this point that Jesus is walking around saying, hey, the words that I speak, they're not my words. They're the words of the Father, and therefore you should listen to me. Dr. Smith, why do you think that most Christians nowadays believe that Jesus existed before his human life? Well, I think that's the popular thing taught in the church councils and in the creeds. It's one of the most popular uh, Christian teachings out there. The, the doctrine of the Trinity teaches that Jesus has coexisted with the Father. The Son has coexisted with the, the Father, and Jesus has always existed in the form of God the Son. So that's a very popular view. It's a very Catholic view. And uh, there are some passages that, you know, if you were to read them at face value as 21st century Westerners, you surely could come away with appearing that Jesus did pre-exist his birth. But unfortunately, that actually creates more problems than it actually answers. And so I think we always have to ask the question, how would these texts have been understood in their original context? Uh, what would these authors have meant? What was their theology? What did these words mean? And through the language and understanding how those words would have been understood in that context, we can best uh, identify what those things would have meant. And sometimes the most literal reading is actually not the correct reading. Sometimes we have to look for nuancing. We have to look for uh, allegories. Sometimes we have to see that personification is actually taking place. So because your view is a minority view about the preexistence of Jesus, do you think this kind of puts a burden of proof on you in debates like this? Some people's initial reaction will be that this is like a conspiracy theory. I mean, how could the majority get this wrong for such a long time? Yeah, I would see that the burden of proof is on me, and I understand that. I have no qualms or uh, frustrations about that. One of the things that I do in my opening statement is I begin from the Hebrew Bible, I begin from the Old Testament. I try to articulate my view starting from the Old Testament, working through the New Testament. I try to value all of Scripture. I try to make a compelling case from the entirety of the Christian Scriptures and not just from a handful of verses in John or from Paul. 
I tried to value all those things. I tried to set the scriptures within their context of Second Temple Judaism and Messianic expectation. And I tried to uh, value the definition of words in the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek language. And I really tried to take all of those things as seriously as possible so as to not appear uh, anachronistic or just cherry-picking evidence. One of the things that really surprised me looking into this issue of pre-existence and also the issue of whether Jesus created the world or whether God created through the pre-human Jesus One thing that really surprised me was finding out about the influence of the Jewish thinker Philo of Alexandria. There's a certain point, which is in the second half of the second century in Christian history, where Logos theology or Logos theory starts to become popular. And what surprised me was learning that a lot of Christians pushed back against that. And Philo held for Platonic reasons, based on Plato's Timaeus, which we won't go into, Philo held that God could not create the material world directly, that God had to create through an intermediary. God's transcendence wouldn't allow him sort of direct contact with creation, so he had to have this other helper. And so Philo, the Jewish thinker who's contemporary with Christ, is going around saying that God has a word through which he created. And in some passages, this sounds like a being, uh, like a some kind of quasi-divine spirit or something like that. Uh, So, yeah, I was surprised to find out that, you know, in the year 200, it was not taken as just obvious that the New Testament teaches that Jesus pre-existed and created. I wish we had more evidence about how some of these mainstream Christians interpreted some of these passages. What we're told by people like Tertullian and Origen is that a lot of people pushed back against this Philonic logos theory and they said we uphold the monarchy the one unique rule of the father we don't have two creators they said there's only one creator the father almighty this outcry against the logos theory only seems to make sense if people interpreted these passages in a way like you're suggesting well it's it's difficult to see where exactly each of these uh, church fathers are coming from with their understanding of what the logos was We know Justin Martyr, for example, is very upfront and open about his influences. He says that he is a philosopher first and that he is a Christian second. So he's bringing with him all of this baggage and these lenses of uh, Middle Platonism and uh, these particular ways of understanding the Logos. And the Greeks have a particular way of articulating the Logos, the, the divine principle of the universe. Unfortunately, a lot of these early church fathers became very anti Semitic. They became very anti-Old Testament. Uh, Many of them could not read Hebrew. Some of them could. And they started to uh, be more influenced by Greek philosophy uh, than by the roots of the developing New Testament, which would be the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, what eventually came to be 77% of the Christian scriptures. And to where, again, uh, the word there, devar in Hebrew, 1,400 times, is never a conscious person alongside Yahweh. It's, It's always God's creative utterance, just the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, or it's just a, a regular thing that's spoken. Sometimes it's, uh, it, it could be personified as God's breath, God's creative breath in Psalm 33, 6, his word created the heavens and the earth. But this, it's not a conscious person in that sense. And so if someone were to neglect the Hebrew mindset of how God's word was expressed in the Hebrew Bible and to substitute it with Greek notions of this logos, which is pervading all creation. It was involved in all creation. 
in a way that perhaps was anti-Jewish, but perhaps was more philosophical, more middle platonic, and uh, perhaps were breaking ties with uh, scriptural understandings of what this word was. And the author of the Gospel of John was deeply rooted in the Hebrew Bible and constantly argues that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Jewish expectations, all of these uh, Jewish themes and symbols. He's not uh, against his Hebrew Bible heritage or his Jewish heritage. In fact, he tries to make the argument that Jesus is the climax of all of these things. To be fair, Justin Martyr isn't quite anti-Semitic, although he's very hard on them sometimes. And as you said, he does wear on his sleeve his philosophical Platonic influences. He's very clear. I mean, not only does he tell you he studied with the Platonists, but when he's discussing divine transcendence, it's clear that he thinks there needs to be an intermediary between God and the material creation. John, too, is hard on the Jews, but only the Jews that reject Jesus, of course. And you don't see any trace, I think, really of philosophical speculation in the gospel according to John. Back to the idea of a conspiracy theory, a lot of people haven't really looked closely at the history of it, haven't considered that there could be well-motivated interpretations of these texts that seem to teach pre-existence and creation. And so you are willing to adopt the burden of proof in the sense that you realize that you can't say, well, this is just a possible interpretation, or here's an interpretation that fits with my theory. You want to try to show how these interpretations best fit the context of the first century. Absolutely. I think any position should aim as unbiased as possible to take all the evidence into account and try to demonstrate that when taking all the uh, factors into account, that their reading of the evidence is the most natural and the most persuasive way of doing that. And I labor to try to present that within the debate and within some of my other writings as well. Yeah, sometimes context can really be everything. And if you change the context, it'll just flip around how you're viewing some passage. Since we've mentioned anti-Semitism, I think this would be a good example. If you're living in the Middle Ages, And you see Jesus having these arguments for the Jews. And then in one of the Gospels, the Jews that demand that Barabbas be released and that Jesus be crucified, they yell out something to Pilate like, let his blood be on us and on our children. person in the Middle Ages who's used to this idea that the Jews are Christ killers, they're just going to be like, see, it's, you know, it says right there that the Jews are just eternally guilty. All the descendants of the Jews are eternally guilty for this crime of killing Jesus. They, they're all a bunch of Christ killers. But then when you put it back in its first century perspective, this just makes no sense at all. I mean, all the earliest Christians are Jews. <laughs> so they can't all be guilty uh, and damned for the death of Christ. It's that in that context, it was understood that this wicked and sinful generation in Jerusalem, that a lot of them blew it and rejected God's reaching out to them through the Messiah. That seems to me like a case where just the context just radically flips around how you view a certain passage. And I think if we understand that there were some inter-Jewish critiques and that Judaism in the Second Temple period was not monolithic, there are a variety of competing Jewish sects that would view their own group and people that agreed with them as legitimacy and the fulfillment of Judaism and all other views as illegitimate, 
then we don't really have a problem with this. Even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is comprised 100% of Jews, they would say that their own group in their own community, they are the true sons of God and all these other Jews in Jerusalem. They would say they are sons of Belial, sons of the devil. So you have not only inside the Bible, uh, within Jesus and Paul, and we can look in like 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Matthew, obviously, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 8, Jesus, who is pro-Jewish, is against some of the Jews as sons of the devil. We also have outside of the Bible, within the Dead Sea Scrolls, other Jews that would view their group as the legitimacy of Judaism, but would say that other Jews uh, are illegitimate. Yeah, and when you think about it, certain Old Testament passages are pretty harsh on certain generations, certain times and places where the Jews basically blew it, or a lot of them did. Mm -hmm. And so it's just continuing that tradition. Yeah. I mean, even Abraham makes his blessings go through Isaac and not Ishmael. And even Isaac makes his blessings go through Jacob and not Esau. So even within the children of Abraham, there are some which are faithful or some whom God chose elected, and some that didn't quite make the cut. When the Trinity's podcast returns, some questions for Dr. Smith that have to do more with the aftermath of the debate and looking back on it. Dr. Smith, why in your presentation did you emphasize that Jesus is taught in the Bible to be a descendant of David? Because I view that a descendant of David, who is a lineal descendant of King David, who lived around the year 1000 BCE, is someone who can't pre-exist his birth. He's a descendant of David. He's someone who is younger than David. And this is an emphasis that we see in the Messianic expectation, both in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. In fact, the very first verse of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 says that Jesus is the son of David, and it labors to give 40-plus names in order to demonstrate that Jesus is a legitimate candidate for the role of Messiah because he does descend from David's own lineage. So the relevance of it to the debate is then that you think it's a background assumption that the descendant exists because of the ancestor? Yes, I would say that. Um, we see a lot of these expectations, even in Second Samuel seven fourteen, where God says that I'm going to be his father, he's going to be my son. Within that couple verses before, in 7 verse 12 of Second Samuel, God says there's a, that David is going to have a son who's going to come forth from him. And uh, although in that particular context it was kind of understood to be Solomon, uh, the chronicler, and First Chronicles 17, verses 11 through 14, understands that this is going to be messianic. And so they remove the reference to Solomon, knowing that this is going to ultimately refer to the Messiah. And I cited a lot of passages in my opening statement, Psalm 18, verse 50, where uh, God's Messiah is going to be from David's seed. And then uh, Psalm 132, verse 11, Yahweh declares, Of the fruit of your body, David, I'm going to set upon your throne. And Jeremiah and also Zechariah talk about how there's going to be a branch from David. You get this the family tree, the family lineage. And so it's not an assumption that I'm bringing to the text. I'm trying to take very seriously 
the qualifications that the Hebrew Bible is placing itself for the role of Messiah and how the New Testament is picking these things up. Matthew chapter 1 talks about Jesus being the son of David, and the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, Jesus himself says that he is the root and descendant of David. But at the same time, it is a common assumption. I mean, I was born in 1970. I'm pretty sure that I did not exist in 1968. I mean, I guess there are people in the world who think that a person does not depend for their existence on those who went before, but I guess these would be believers in reincarnation, you know, transmigration of souls. So the person doesn't exist because of the ancestors. They Maybe the person just always existed. Now they're just going from one body to another. There were Greeks who believed in reincarnation, like Plato. Do you see any evidence of belief in reincarnation of, in Jews in the first century? Yeah, I don't see that being taught anywhere in Scripture. I don't see Second Temple Jews, at least Palestinian Jews, making that sort of argument. The argument that's made both in Matthew and Luke is through these detailed lists of names, these genealogies in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. Of course, they're drawing on the genealogies that we already have in Genesis chapter 5, at the beginning of First Chronicles, where they would trace the lineage of their people through these various ancestors, these various patriarchs. And so they're not arguing that Jesus existed alongside God consciously in heaven and that all of a sudden he decided to give up being that heavenly being and to become human in some sort of incarnation sense. They're trying to say, no, he is descendant of Abraham, the descendant of David, and even uh, Luke takes it as far. He takes it all the way back to, to Adam. Adam being the son of God says that Jesus is one of the ultimate descendants of Adam. So, Dr. Smith, in your view, do Matthew and Luke only assume that Jesus came into existence, or do they explicitly assert that Jesus came into existence? I think they do explicitly assert that Jesus came into existence. Again, we can look at all the names that show up, and we can see that uh, Jesus is the one that, that comes as the fulfillment and climax of all of these things. Mm-hmm. Of course, Matthew 118 uh, talks about the genesis of Jesus is as follows, and I, I note in my debate that this word genesis means uh, creation, means beginning. And of course, uh, talks about the story about how Joseph is going to send Mary away until the angel of the Lord says, hey, don't do this. The child who has been begotten in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. And so God miraculously creates Jesus, kind of the beginning of the new creation within the womb of Mary. God is the, the father figure there. So Jesus miraculously created there without the agency of a human father. And so it's not an assumption on my part. It's something that I'm, I'm taking very seriously that Matthew is trying to articulate. There is no hint at preexistence there. And a variety of scholars have said the same thing. Even Raymond Brown, the uh, famous Catholic, argues in his book that Matthew's not speaking about preexistence. He has no idea what preexistence is. He's arguing that Jesus came into existence. And the same thing we see also in Luke where um, the angel Gabriel tells Mary, hey, you're going to have a son. He's going to be Jesus. He's going to be the son of God, and David is going to be his father. That's uh, verses uh, 32 and 33 of Luke chapter 1. And then Mary, of course, in verse 34 is like, how is this even possible? I've never known a man. I've never known Joseph. And then Gabriel answers that God's Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, Mary. The power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy One being begotten will be called the Son of God. And so there specifically the reason why Jesus is called the Son of God is because of the miracle in the womb of Mary, due in part to the Holy Spirit being the active creator of Jesus at this point. He's not the Son of God in any sense prior to that. He's the Son of God precisely because of the miraculous beginning 
inside his mother. So again, that's something that Matthew and Luke are explicitly declaring if we are faithful with the words written there in the text. Now, Dr. Smith, a few ancient interpreters, when they look at that passage you just quoted from Luke, they believe that the Holy Spirit that is coming down to Mary is the Logos. You know, that's the divine pre-existent spirit uh, assuming human nature at that point. Why do you reject that ancient interpretation? Well, that's not an argument that Luke himself is making. He doesn't say uh, the Logos became flesh. He uses this, this uh, verb, yanao, which means to father. And he says the, the Holy Spirit is coming upon Mary. And then, of course, with the synonymous parallelism, the power of the Most High, Holy Spirit and the power of the Most High are coming upon him. It's actually very similar to uh, the creation in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1-2, it says the earth was formless and void, however you want to translate that. And this is the Holy Spirit was kind of hovering over the waters. But this word for hovering is actually a rare word that means brooding. You get the sense of like kind of a mother hen that's like brooding over, you know, right before the creation of, of her, her chicks are going to be there. And then, of course, in the very next verse, God speaks God's word and God said, let there be light. And so creation occurs because the Holy Spirit is there creating something new. And we all see the same thing here in Luke where the Holy Spirit is hovering over Mary. And then, bam, we have new creation, the creation of this human Jesus and it's because of that he is called the Son of God. And of course, I've already mentioned the fact that Son of God was also used in Luke to refer to Adam. And Adam was someone who was not a pre-existing Son of God who became human. He was someone who was, again, born from the dust of the ground. Dr. Smith, you said something that went by really fast there. I want to make sure it registers with the listener. You mentioned the idea of a Hebrew-style synonymous parallelism. And so you're saying in verse 35 that I brought up, when the angel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and that's the part I said, well, they thought that was, that's like the Logos coming down from heaven to get into her womb and get a human nature. But the whole phrase is, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. You're saying that that's saying the same thing twice, that that's part of the style, the Hebrew, quasi-Hebrew style there. The power Most High overshadowing you doesn't sound like kind of a ghost flying down and taking residence in the womb of a woman. Yeah, it's, it's demonstrating that, uh, that Luke is writing with this uh, Semitic understanding. Uh, God's Holy Spirit is an expression of his power. It's God's operational presence and power working in extension. And of course, uh, throughout the Gospel of Luke, Luke continues to have this theology. Even at, uh, after the resurrection, Jesus tells the disciples to wait because they're about to receive power from on high in Luke chapter 24, and obviously he means they're going to receive the Holy Spirit, which we actually see in Luke's second volume, the book of Acts. So we can see that that's just a major understanding that Luke himself carries in his theology expressed throughout his gospel. Dr. Smith, we see in the New Testament the idea that 
It was only indirectly through angels that God revealed the law to Moses. And we know that during Jesus's life, the Jewish thinker we mentioned before, Philo of Alexandria, was teaching that God needed an intermediary to create the material world and even thereafter to interact with it. So when we come to Paul, a highly educated diaspora Jew, right in the 50s and 60s AD, should we be expecting him to say that God created the world indirectly through an intermediary? I think it would depend on what we mean by an intermediary. Now, I'd also say that Paul was a highly educated Jew, but he wasn't educated in the diaspora. The book of Acts indicates that he was educated in Jerusalem, so that would make him uh, educated from Jewish rabbis uh, within Palestine. Paul shows uh, a deep appreciation for uh, the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament. One of the things about Philo is that Philo actually is, is exclusively drawing on the Septuagint. He doesn't actually know any Hebrew. He doesn't demonstrate any knowledge of Hebrew. And so uh, they're, we're, they're kind of two separate persons there. Uh, and actually, uh, the, the critical Philo scholars actually admit that the writings of Philo were not made available to any of the New Testament writers, whether that be Paul or the author of the Gospel of John or the author of Hebrews. They did not have access to these sort of things. The interesting thing, too, is that even the rabbis uh, seem to be completely unaware that Philo had any writings. Josephus mentions Philo, but doesn't mention that Philo was a writer. So although he did write a lot of stuff, it doesn't seem like it was preserved and copied by a bunch of Jews. In fact, they were actually preserved by Christians. So that's just a, a minor point there. So Paul, uh, I do think that Paul believes that God had created things through an intermediary, but it depends on what we mean by an intermediary. In Proverbs 3.19, it says, Yahweh, by wisdom, through wisdom, created the heavens and the earth. And that's just a, a poetic way in the book of Proverbs to say that God wisely created and ordered all creation. Genesis 1 says that God looked at everything that he created and he saw that it was good. And even in Genesis 1.31, it was very good, tov meod. And so God's creation was ordered, it was wise. And so the way the book of Proverbs would articulate this, say that God created things through his wisdom. One of the interesting things about wisdom is that wisdom being this personification of God's wise interaction with the world was actually a commonly debated topic within Second Temple Judaism. We can see in the Apocrypha, which is part of the uh, Septuagint that the early Christians possessed and used as part of their Old Testament. In the book of Sirach, chapter 24, it would say that the way that you find God's wisdom is within the law of Moses. And also we see this also in the book of Baruch chapter 4 and verse 1, also within that Apocrypha. So the early Christians would draw upon this particular lingo where they would say that wisdom is really actually not expressed in God's law the way that the Jews would. They would actually say that wisdom is actually now fully expressed and personified uh, and actually fully embodied in Jesus, something we actually see Paul explicitly say this in the book of 1 Corinthians, which is actually a very interesting example for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, Paul lays his cards on the table and he says, Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God. And so that wisdom in the Hebrew Bible, which is a personification of God's wise interaction with the world, Paul is actually saying Jesus is actually God's wisdom. Okay, Paul can say wisdom is now fully embodied and understood and realized in Jesus. And so now we can see Paul saying things like 1 Corinthians 8, 6, where all things were made through Christ, because all things were made through wisdom in Proverbs 3.19. And also we can see Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, the rock that followed them was Christ. 
when Wisdom of Solomon and Philo were saying that uh, the rock that followed them was wisdom. And so Paul was interacting with this Jewish world and this Jewish understanding of what God's wisdom was and how people can identify and find and, 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 and seek after God's wisdom. And so actually the way that we find and interact and embrace God's wisdom today is by looking at Jesus, who is the true embodiment of God's wise interaction with the world. So, Dr. Smith, the thrust of a lot of what you said in the debate is that there is this eternal word and wisdom of God, and this, in the fullness of time, gets expressed in the man Jesus, who's a real man. He comes into existence because of his ancestors like other men. Then you can say the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And the things that Jesus did, you could chalk up to wisdom. You could say we, we saw and touched wisdom itself or something like that. What's more jarring, though, is if you then try to refer to something that happened way before the life of Jesus with wisdom and then talk about that as if it's Jesus. If an author is talking about the creation of the world and they mean that God created through wisdom, it's jarring for them to put that in terms of creating through Christ because the word had not become flesh yet. And another passage that I wondered about, and I'm not sure I've settled in my own mind, is 1 Corinthians 10, talking about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness after leaving Egypt. Paul says, this is the NIV, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And I think in the debate, Mr. Barron said, if he was just doing typology there, wouldn't he have said that the rock is Christ? But he sounds like he's talking about Christ back in those days. And then, of course, later in verse 9, the NIV says, we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. So, I mean, in this chapter, Paul seems to be putting Jesus back in the time of the Exodus. Yeah, one of the things that we see in that particular argument is that Paul is trying to show from the Hebrew Bible that, hey, there are all of these Israelites, and they had all of these great privileges. But the interesting thing is that he interprets them typologically through this Christian lens. When he says in verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses. Well, he's obviously saying, look, they had the sacraments. You know, they, they, they were baptized in Moses because he's also trying to tell the Corinthians, hey, you guys were also baptized. And so if these Israelites had all of these, you know, had been inaugurated into the faith, the faith of Yahweh, and yet they fell short because of their disobedience, then you two Christians need to watch out yourself. His, his whole argument is learn from their example. But what he does is, is in order to make this argument, he says, hey, verse 2, they were baptized into Moses. Verse 3, they ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual drink. Well, obviously, baptism and drinking the spiritual food and the spiritual drink are the two Christian sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But he's interpreting the Hebrew Bible that way. And so, of course, he's going to say the rock that followed them was Christ. Since I already mentioned the passages were Philo, Wisdom of Solomon 11 and verse 4, and Sirach 15 verse 3, where they all say before Paul wrote this, that the rock that followed them was Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom was the one that gave them refreshing water that helped them in their journey. But Paul does say in verse 6 very clearly, these things happen as examples for us. And the word for examples in Greek is tipi, the word for types. He's speaking typologically. And again, he uses the same word in verse 11. 
These things came to us as an example. Uh, typikos, again, he's speaking typologically there. He says very specifically, he is speaking typologically in verse 6 and in verse 11. It's obvious that uh, the baptism is reading in this new covenant language back into the Hebrew Bible, and the eating the spiritual food and the spiritual drink is reading that back into the Hebrew Bible because that's the thing that the Corinthians were dealing with. They were the ones that said, oh, we've got all of these uh, privileges as being members of Christ. We, we are spiritual people. We've gone through all these great things. Perhaps we can just kind of do whatever we want. And Paul's saying, hey, don't be idolaters like these people. Don't be like this. And so we have to understand the entire argument that he's making there. He's not making a Christological argument. He's not saying Christ was back there. And again, I've already demonstrated back at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ is the wisdom from God. He is, present tense. Not that Christ just became to it. Paul has no problem saying, in the present, Jesus is wisdom, and wisdom is Jesus. He can go back and forth, and he's very fluid with this. Now, that might not sound very precise to us in 2016, but it's not up to us. It's up to Paul. Paul is defining his own terms. This is how Paul is operating, and we need to allow Paul, if he's going to make that case, we need to take him very seriously as to what he's saying. So, uh, I would start with really trying to take seriously what is going on in the entire passage in 1 Corinthians 10. Understand that Paul is saying something about wisdom when he's speaking about the rock being Christ, something that was already said by three different separate authors before Paul, and to understand that Paul has already laid the groundwork in 1 Corinthians 1.30 to say Christ is the wisdom of God for us. So in your view, he's not taking upon himself to talk about the obscure pre-human career of Jesus, but he's making a pastoral point and kind of loosely treating this as a type. So he doesn't really care if it sounds like he's putting Christ back there. It's interesting, he does, in right after this passage you're talking about, return to the issue of idols and food sacrifice to idols. So yeah, he does seem to have practical pastoral issues in mind the whole time, doesn't he? Yeah, in verse 14, he actually summarizes by saying, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The same idolatry that is mentioned in verse 7, do not be idolaters, where he cites the passage from the book of Exodus, where they created the golden calf, and they sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. So remember, eating and drinking, just because they're eating and drinking, that doesn't mean that everything is good. That's why he's brought the example up of the spiritual food and the spiritual drink. Paul's not saying that they took communion you know, back in the book of Exodus. He's not saying in the book of Exodus they were all practicing baptism into Moses. These are types. And again, the type, he's already established that this is the word, the examples. These are typologically fused arguments that he's making, as he's mentioned in verse 6 and verse 11. Dr. Smith, thanks for talking with us. Hey, thanks, Dale, for having me. Today's thinking music was Sinking Feeling by Jesse Spillane. There's a link where you can listen to or download this whole track at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share the podcast on social media. Help us to get the word out on Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and so on. Another thing you can do is give us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. 
for some directions on how to do this, just go to trinities.org slash blog slash review. You can support the podcast by giving us a one-time or a monthly donation through PayPal. Just look for the orange buttons on the right side of any blog post. Every little bit helps. And if you shop at Amazon.com, enter that website through a blog post. If you do this and then make a purchase, then without increasing your price, we get a small percentage. Lastly, make your voice heard. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our very active Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. We're always open to show ideas, guest suggestions, objections, and so on. Sometimes I even respond to feedback in an episode. Don't forget then to share, to rate, to chip in when you can, and to talk back. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.